0: Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Franstans. Thank you so much for all your mazel tov wishes. It's been so nice celebrating with you all. If you haven't heard yet, my husband and I welcomed a baby girl into our family last week. Don't worry, we will have weekly shows for you that I have been pre-recording and preparing for you to cover you for the next several months. We're so grateful to Hashem and thank you for sharing in the Simcha with us. Today, for Tisha I am releasing a No More Silence episode, and I also linked all the previous No More Silence episodes for you in the show notes. So if you'd like to continue listening to these episodes of the series, you can spend your Tisha doing just that. I want to wish you an easy and meaningful fast. Shout out to JewishCoffeeHouse.com. We are on the Jewish Coffee House network, so check out their podcasts. Today's round-robin feature, it's for the Weekly Squeeze podcast with Hanala, who actually started this round-robin where we have eight podcasters featuring each other's shows for eight weeks, seven weeks. And if you are looking or thinking of launching your own podcast, let me be the one who helps you. I have DIY options for you as well as the White Glove podcast launch experience. So check out the links in the show notes to get started and see you in the chat for more discussion. Have an easy fast, here we go. Hey everyone, this is Hanalev from the Weekly Squeeze. When I am not making music and busy being a supermom to my Israeli kids, I'm diving deep into Jewish pop culture. If it's happening in the Jewish world, you're gonna hear about it here first. From Israel to Brooklyn and everywhere in between, I will keep you updated on all the comings and goings of Jewish celebs. While I share insider information about what's going on in the professional lives of all the movers and shakers that keep the Jewish entertainment world turning around. Heavy on humor, light on sarcasm, always interesting. The Weekly Squeeze is served fresh twice a week. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. So let's start just like we start every other personal story episode. Tell us how your story starts, where your story begins.
1: So my story starts actually all the way when I was six years old, which is a crazy age to even say it. And every time I say it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Like I look at my own children when they're six and I think to myself, six years old, like they're just out of diapers. They're little tiny beings who don't know they're all of face yet and they don't know anything. So I come from a family that obviously had some sort of disruption. And I really believe that any story like this starts off with a disruption. It's not a disruption that's as big as people think. It's not a divorce or death. It's the family moved communities and that in itself can really disrupt children. And that disruption led to vulnerability, which led to one of my brothers being molested, which led to him, I guess, processing his trauma through me. We start all the way at six years old. So it starts with little things, it's blurbs of memories. And as we're going to talk, you're going to see, I, it's just little spots of things, like even through years and years. And I would say at this point, 20 plus years of therapy, probably 25 years at this point, And it's still huge amounts of disassociation and huge amounts of gaps and black holes. And when my children ask me about my childhood, I'm like, I don't know, go ask your father. Because it's it, it's lots and lots of spaces of I wasn't there. I wasn't there for my childhood. So it starts with little things. It starts with the sharpener that he got me. I can vividly recall a green sharpener. And I felt so special with the stupid green sharpener, but I was five. I was six. I was little and a sharpener from your older brother is a big deal. That means somebody sat with you and played with you and showed you your little glittery pencils can be sharpened. It's a thing. So I want to practice the story with two things. The first one is. You cannot look at anyone's story from 30, 40 years ago and say, it's the same as what's happening now. The awareness wasn't there. My parents were professionals. They still are. They were well-educated. They were serving in leadership roles, and they still missed every single sign. And the signs were big. They weren't little. And I guess 2020 is, is perfect, but the signs were there. And you can't look at it in today's perspective where we're all talking about molestation and we're all talking about bodily autonomy and we're all talking about how it's not a lack of C's to have these conversations. And these conversations are happening in our schools and in our schools and in our camps and between our parents at the pool. You know what I'm saying? These things are happening now and they weren't. And it was all shrouded by secrecy and lack of guidance by community leaders and lack of guidance by even therapists. And it just, it wasn't the done thing to talk about, even my parents who were extremely educated. They missed all the signs, every single one. And these signs were blaring fogborns. They weren't little subtle signs. They weren't like a, an eating disorder that was hidden. It was kids not doing well in school and kids loud aggression. And there was a lot of stuff that came out over the years and they missed every single sign. And I don't think it's their fault. What brought my story here, I guess, is the whole Heimwolder story. Because after Kyle Mulder's story came up, I guess like a lot of trauma victims who had similar stories in some sort of area, we all got triggered. And we all thought to ourselves, like, what about us? And my first thought was all these years where I'm not talking to the brethren who did this to me, I've never pressed charges. I've never done anything. And I always thought that there was a statute of limitations that helped me back. And it turns out there wasn't by the way. And so I filed a police report. And we spoke to the DA's office. You actually go into what's called a special victims unit. So you start talking to the special police who are actually trained. And they're really, I would say they're almost like therapists. They're really kind and gentle and respectful and in tune with what you need. And you go. The problem is, though, like I said before, I have holes. I have lots of holes. in order to, I guess, a crime to stick. You need to have a place, you need to have a person, and you need to have an incident. And my recollections are not specific enough to do anything. So then we went into the fact that perhaps we would have a recording of him admitting to the to what had happened, but he lives in a state that is a...
0: To consent recording state.
1: Exactly. And so that wasn't a possibility and at the end they called me back after all this like emotional upheaval and they were like there's nothing we could do which is a slap in the face almost because for so many years i was like at one point i'm going to be able to do something when they overturn this stupid statute of limitations and turns out that we can't but if somebody has like a white collar crime or somebody does something that affects someone's money or property like we can prosecute that for years which is so unfair and so horrible then when you were reaching out on Instagram, I think it was Instagram that you said, oh, does anyone want to talk? And I was like, sure, I'll talk. Like, we need to start having this conversation because this conversation is shrouded in mystery and there's no reason for it to be. And there's no reason for people who have survived trauma like this to feel like there's some place that they're the victim or they're they're making chelashem or... They're uprooting the face of their family or the community in any sort of way, because it's absolutely nothing to do with the people who have survived such trauma. It has everything to do with the perpetrators. And those perpetrators are walking around our community, lots of them, again, in leadership positions, respected. I cannot tell you how many times people come over to me and say, oh, your brother, is he the one in? And I'm like, yeah, he lives there. Yes, he's in that leadership role. Yes, he does X, Y, Z. Those are all wonderful things, but like it's a slap in my face every time someone comes over to that. He's allowed to be in a leadership position. Do I know if he did Teshuvah? No. Do I know that he has access to children still? Absolutely. Do I know that I've spoken to people who've hired him and anonymously shared my story? Just don't care. Like they just don't care. There's no disruption to his life in any sort of way. Do I know that his wife knows what happened? Yes, I know his wife knows what happened. Do I know that they've had more children and they continue to live together? Yes. Do I know that when my children learned that they have an uncle that, they, that I don't speak to that doesn't exist, that my family knows that they don't talk to me, and they discovered this uncle at a family summp up, they're like, "Ma, do you have an uncle na- do you have a brother named, whatever?" And I said, yes." And my husband is like, "You know what? He changed the conversation for me so I was getting upset change they conversation. And then they went to my parents and they said to my parents, do you have, how many kids do you, they started like digging, how many kids do you have? What are their names? And of course they said all the names. And they said, why do we not know that uncle? And my parents, God bless them, that because mommy's in a fight with him. And I was like, so angry. I'm not in a fight with him. Like we're not in a fight. This is my boundary. This is where I feel safe and secure, where I can continue to live my life in the absence of this person who has never, ever taken ownership of what he's done. And when you hear my parents say such a thing and you're coming from an outside perspective, you think to yourself, how could they say you're in a fight with him? And you think these must be horrible people who just are so attitude. They're not attitude. They just are from a generation that does not have the tools to have these conversations. We didn't have these conversations with our parents. Their friends' children didn't have these conversations. They don't have tools for our children of today who ask deep questions and expect real mature answers. My children came up with me and said, Ma, you always tell us not to fight with our siblings, then you're in a fight with your sibling. And I said, actually, I'm going to tell you the truth. And obviously they're little, they're under bar and bas mitzvah, they're not little, but they're young. And I didn't tell them everything, but I gave them a bite-sized piece of what happened and I said, he did things that were unacceptable and in order to protect our family, right now we're not talking to him. And that was the end of the conversation for them. That really was enough. I will say that watching our community allow people to just continue coming to Schulz and supermarkets and being in every single realm of life, I have started to speak up. I don't care. In the street, there's two perpetrators that I know. The one who did what he did to my brother, who was a teacher in a school. And I will routinely, he lives several blocks from my house, really not far and I will see him and there was, like, and I'll actually say, you don't belong in our neighborhood. Like I'll say in a loud voice, I won't shout, but in a loud voice, no, you don't belong in our neighborhood. Pedophiles don't belong here. Stay away from children. I'll say comments like that as I casually walk by and he gets very angry that he curses at me. He's a rabbi, he has a beard, He has, and he'll use four letter words. Like he gets like really triggered and I don't care. So one day I'm driving home and I'm driving home and my child is in the car. So I see him and I unroll my window and I said, loud, but not shouting. My kid's in the car. So I said, you don't belong in our neighborhood. And he already knows my face. And he like lost it. And I just drove away. And my son turned to me, he said, is that what your brother did? And I said, yes. So he knows a little bit more. Like he said, is he a bad person like your brother is? And I said, yes. And I don't know if that was the right thing or the wrong thing. I just know that these conversations have to be high and we have to have them in our schools, and we have to take away the shame from them because the only thing that's shameful is the things that are hurting the children. And when we start talking about it, that's not the shame. The shame continues to happen in private. By not talking, we keep perpetuating the shame of our community. The only time that we stop is when we bring the shame to light and we let truth onto the shame. And at that point, we could start erasing the hurt of children to come because we do know that males are likely to perpetuate sexual abuse as part of their their own personal healing and their own personal processing of the trauma. So the only way to stop and break the cycle is to talk about it and to bring light to it. And you cannot continue to molest children when children have the tools to speak up and when there's transparency and when we don't allow perpetrators to continue to
0: do this. Let's dig a little deeper. Are you comfortable sharing a little bit more of the pieces that you do remember? Your brother was molested by an adult at the time. You were molested by a child at the time.
1: He wasn't a child. He's older than me, significantly older than me. He was not a child. I want to make that very clear. In a from family where people are ranging in ages 20 years apart, this is not a child we're talking about.
0: I think that was unclear. Not that any molestation is okay at all, but the details do matter. Do you know if he's still doing it or if there are any other victim survivors of your brother?
1: I will tell you that I know that he molested another one of my siblings. And this sibling was much more adversely affected than I was, meaning he's still living with so much that he hasn't allowed himself to process. Do I know if he's doing it still? I do not. I cannot definitively tell you that, but I will tell you a few things. When I got married, and this is after years of therapy and me asking my therapist, you sure I'm ready? You sure I'm ready? You sure I'm going to be able to be together with my husband? And being assured, no problem, you're fine. Your trauma is sufficiently healed. And even while I was engaged, I went and did, you know, a week of intensive therapy and then was not able to consummate the marriage due to severe PTSD, anxiety, and six weeks into the marriage when we still hadn't done anything. And it wasn't because it wasn't coming together. It was because of this and my husband, who was very young, kind of was beating himself up about it. And I was like, it's not him. Like, I knew it was me, but I didn't know who to turn to.
0: You couldn't talk to him about it? Your husband did not know?
1: He did not know because I was told by Das Tyra to not tell him which okay. is not fair. But I was told, do not tell him. I wanted to tell him on our third date, on our fourth date, like I was like, if he's willing to marry me, he should know what's coming with. My parents were very upset about it, that I wanted to tell him I'm a very open person. And they consulted with their rabbi, and he said, do not, absolutely. It's need to know only.
0: And your husband, to be, <laughs> does not need to know. He's the only person who actually does need to know. Okay, I'm so sorry. I'm laughing. I'm just shocked. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they said, oh, no, you can be happily married 20, 30 years. And he doesn't ever have to know, which is not possible because it's not fear to that person because it's going to come out. It's going to come out in ways big and small. It does. That's how trauma works. It will pop up in the weirdest places, in the places that you don't think there's any trauma. And suddenly, I don't know, it's the bowl of sour cream. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not logical always. It's sometimes the stupid things and it's not fair. So what he thinks that it's his fault every single time. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's obviously a straw. I don't think that's, you know, whatever, but that's what we were told. And so I hadn't told him, but at six weeks I was like, I didn't even know who to call. I remember pacing my kitchen and he was in Kolel and I was not sure what to do. Cause he was going to come home. And I was broken up about the fact that we hadn't been together. And it was my fault. And he, I knew, thought it was his. And so when he came in the door, I told him that I had to tell him something, but I couldn't get the words out. It took me, if I tell you, Kula ended at seven or eight. I don't remember the exact time. It was midnight before I got the words out. Like, it took time for me to even figure out to say something happened to me and it's not your fault. And I don't think I said much more than that. But here's the ironic part, and you might laugh, once I did tell him, and he was very much out of his depth, he reached out to a rabbi, and that rabbi told him that he should get divorced. So, the ironic part is that one rabbi said, oh, no, it has no implication whatsoever. And the other one said, oh, the implication's so big, run, because you'll never live this one down. So, we are not divorced. And I give him a lot of credit for that, because his parents were telling him that. And Das Tyra was telling him that, and he told the rabbi who he spoke to, I'm sorry, but I have to speak to another rabbi because I can't, I'm not living without her. And I won't tell you that it was smooth sailing from there. I will tell you that there have been bumps and all related to this, but it's workable. And we've built a beautiful life. And for anyone who's listening, who's gone through trauma or is in the midst of dealing with that, it is possible, or any other situation related to this, I want to tell you very clearly, it is possible not only to survive, it is possible to thrive. And your marriage can be beautiful, and your bedroom life can be enjoyable, and your interpersonal, emotional, all that stuff can be so wonderful. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You asked if it's possible that he was still doing this. So why did I say that? Because after this all happened, we reached out, We, my husband Googled and found a therapist who, by weird circumstances, ended up being the therapist who treated my brother prior to his like wedding. How bizarre. And it wasn't even a local therapist. The most bizarre thing. And at one point, I put the pieces together and I said, do you think... And in violation of kippah, she answered me, I still can't believe it. And I said, Do you think that he is still hurting anyone? And this is what she told me The mark of a molester is extreme selfishness. That means that they're going to put their needs above someone else without any regard to the person they're hurting. You will know that a person is no longer molesting anyone when they put your needs before their own. I have never, ever, seen him put my needs before his own. At every single family, call where I refuse to come, if he's there, he has made a fuss and he has made statements like, oh, she's breaking the family. Why can't you let it go? The times that he has apologized, it's been because someone has forced him to. Before his wedding, my parents were like, you're not getting married until you apologize. I just have not seen any space where he has put my needs before his own. And therefore, can I say definitively that he's not hurting anyone? No, I can't. But can I say definitively that I think he's done Chuva and he is no longer hurting anyone? Absolutely not. I think, I don't know.
0: And his wife knows and knew always?
1: She did not always know. When the story came out to my husband, he was really upset and he said, I didn't know about it. I bet you she doesn't know about it. And he reached out to her. And until this day, she's upset at
0: him. Talk to me more about the trauma itself.
1: I think that what's very important to note here is that I think what people don't realize when they hear about molestation and you say an age like, oh, it started at six, is that it can continue for a long time. It continued until after I had my period. So that you understand he could have gotten me pregnant. Okay? That's why I say that. I had no concept that this wasn't normal. I thought because I grew up in a very insular community, I thought fathers did this to children, children did this to other children, and this was part of the normal fabric of family life. I did not think I was getting hurt. I did not think that something was going wrong. I had no words for what was happening. I don't remember, did I like it? Did I not like it? Was it horrible? Was I, I don't remember any of that, but I do remember vividly thinking my father probably did this to him. And his, this is his job. Like he's the older brother and this is what he's supposed to do. However crazy that sounds, when we're not talking about things, that is the assumption your children are making, that this is normal. When did I realize it was not normal? In camp, you know, those late night conversations in overnight camp that every parent is like, how could those conversations happen? Those conversations saved me. I listened and my heart dropped. I did not, until that moment, know that this was something only couples did. I did not know that this was something that brothers were not supposed to do to sisters. I did not know. So those late-night conversations are important, right? Those late-night conversations are conversations, really, maybe they shouldn't be happening at late-night, but they should be happening with mothers and daughters and sisters. They should be happening with adults and children, with the context, obviously, of godliness and holiness and bodily otan, all the things that we want to give our children. But we can't erase the conversations. Those conversations have to happen. And so I don't think it was the first year I came home from camp. I think it was the second year I came home from camp. I walked into the house and he and I went to unpack my suitcases and he came into my room and he sat on my bed that I was sitting on. And I moved to the other bed and he came to the other bed and I moved to the, and I started shouting and my mother from the kitchen, as mothers will do, will say, stop fighting. And that's what she said. She said, stop fighting. And he yelled back something like that he, they, we were fighting or whatever. And she continued doing whatever she was doing in the kitchen. And so I went into the bathroom and I locked the door and he sat in my room for a while, but it never happened again after that. And just for clarity's sake, by the way, when we say molestation, there are different levels of molestation, right? So there can be inappropriate sight, inappropriate touch, and then there's like penetration and stuff like that. And I will tell you that the molestation that happened for six years and included everything. It included things when the doors were open and my parents were in the next room. It included things where guests were walking in and out of the house and I was in the living room family computer when he was taking his little sister onto his lap to play a, a video game with her. like it was the regular things that we are always like oh look how cute he's taking care of his little sister it was not cute yeah I don't know what else to say but I think that people don't realize that it can look completely it could look nice on the surface it could look like okay and when did I you didn't, I didn't tell my parents If that that's the next question I did not tell them right away I actually was not the one who told my parents when I was going into high school. I had a lot of anger, tremendous anger, and I didn't know where to put it. And it came out actually against my father. And there was a lot of shouting and a lot of, I guess you would say chutzpah. So there was a lot of disrespect and it disrupted the family. It did. And he actually was the one who told my parents, which is the only time he's ever done anything like that. But he told my parents what happened and he was not the one kicked out of the house. I was. <laughs> I was sent to wait for the summer.
0: Hold on. So what did he tell your parents if they kicked you out instead of him?
1: I guess they thought to themselves, oh, he really needs the help. I don't know what he said. I know he said something. Maybe he said about himself and maybe he threw me in there as an afterthought. I'm not sure. I've never asked my parents, but I would shift off to another sibling's house, a married sibling, and I spent the summer there. God bless my sister-in-law, who had just had a little baby, and she still took me <laughs> for the entire summer. I never moved back home after that.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about your family, their religious background, and where you're spaced in the family?
1: So I come from a Hasidic family. So whatever that means, it definitely means that there are certain conversations that weren't SNEAS. There certain conversations we do not talk about. I am in the middle of the family.
0: So the context definitely helps, unfortunately, to understand more about the age difference between you and your siblings, the kicking out part.
1: Do do think that they were trying to protect me because there was a lot of upheaval in the family and in that brother's house that I went to. There wasn't. It was a beautiful summer. I know how it sounds. But it was a beautiful summer. It was a really nice, good summer. And starting after that, I've been in therapy since.
0: So you got yourself into therapy or your parents? No, I
1: did not. My parents did. My parents are very educated, well-respected people. They are not stupid. And once this came out, they tried. I will say that they genuinely tried with the tools that they were given.
0: So I did get questions from some of my audience members. They wanted to know more about what is it like building intimacy and trust and having a healthy marriage post such horrible, extensive, ongoing child trauma?
1: I will say probably the two cornerstone things are communication and transparency. So obviously, I don't, I have, not obviously, but I have never told my husband everything, but he has, like when we first started working through things before we had children, we did do joint sessions of therapy, where there was a lot of work that was done on support. I will say that Rebunem were involved and were super supportive. The people that we did end up reaching out to were absolutely wonderful and helped us with different heterum in the bedroom. Things that were done differently than the way that they are traditionally done in the community.
0: Can you give examples? Yeah, sure.
1: Positions. Things that gave me more control, having the lights on, it all goes back down to control. So the things that are taken away from someone who is molested is control. You lose control of your body. You lose control of your choices. And so to give those controls back in the bedroom were a big part of what had to happen. And even something as simple as if teaching him the nonverbal cues of no. So you have to sometimes really be in touch with the person in front of you who's a trauma victim, who might just be disassociating and you don't even know it. So it's just the glazed over eyes. And unless you're really like in tune and trained to see it, even therapists miss that. So he had to go through the process of where are you? Do you need to pause? Remember that. Or even things like, well, you know how there's, he's not supposed to talk when he's inside of you. There's all that stuff. But for a trauma victim, sometimes that voice is very grounding, right? So those type of things that With the guidance of Rabbanim, which was an important component, by the way, because it takes away the guilt. It takes away, oh, I'm not good enough and I'm not, I'm less than or I'm damaged. No, you're not. This is what Tyra wants from you. And this is the place that you're in. And this is your space. And this is your Kedusha. And this is your holiness. And this is your power. To give that back to me from a space of Torah was very important. I cannot understate that. So for someone who maybe went through trauma and isn't connected to Hashem and the Tyrant, whatever. But for someone who is, it's a big deal to continue to have that, I guess, the stamp of approval or the fact that you're not less than, and to hear that from, that, that, that is a big deal. So there were rabbinim, there were therapists, were, there was a process. Do I give my husband credit? Absolutely. Coming from where he was a sheep boy who didn't have any background in what this could possibly mean for him to open up his mind to that degree it was very unique and special for sure. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like you're past that trauma now or do you feel like it's something that you actively have to work on even years after?
1: We're all a work in progress. I think we're all working through some sort of trauma at some point. So I don't think that...
0: My question is, does it go away? Does it fade away? Or is it always there?
1: It comes up in different ways. Meaning there are definitely parts of this that have made me stronger and have made me more nuanced and have made me more sensitive and have made me a better parent and a better wife. So there's definitely things that have, through the brokenness, brought me up to a higher space of being. Do I wish the brokenness on anyone? No. But the wholeness that comes afterwards sometimes is better maybe not better, but it's a different level of being. So it's a different state of who we are and it's a different drive in my life. And I think, does it come up? Yes. In ways good, which is what I'm trying to say, there is good that can come out of it. And in ways bad, so there's still going to be triggers. When my kids get to a certain age, there's going to be triggers, and when you know they're at an age where he was at, there's going to be, you know, there's going to continuously be triggers. Which is why I think trauma therapy is not a one and done. It's keep going and revisiting. David Hameloff, even he he speaks about in Tehillim about the sins of his youth. And I am not comparing David Hameloff to my brother, but I'm saying that David Hameloff speaks about the sins of his youth. In Tehillim, because he constantly revisited it, as he changed as a person, he constantly went back and revisited What did I do? Well, now I have to do tshuva because I'm an elevated person. I have to go back and do the tshuva from a different perspective. And I think all of us go through life like that, right? So we go through life and we become elevated humans. And in our elevation, sometimes there's new cracks and there's new spaces and we have to revisit the past. So, everything's going to come up for everyone in different ways throughout their life. And the same is with this trauma. Yes, it's going to keep coming up. Does that make me less than? No.
0: Can you talk more about that gap you acting out in high school and then moving out of your parents' home, starting therapy and getting married? Like at one point, everything seems to be really bad. And now you speak of your relationship with Hashem and Judaism in a very positive way and how in order for you to heal, you do need Das Torah, and you do need the guidance of Rabbanim and the Heksher for whatever you do. So how does that dynamic evolve throughout your growing up life?
1: So my acting out, actually, I think because the age that it was in, it wasn't in high school, it was in elementary school, actually. I think had it gone to high school, it's likely to have affected my relationship with God and with Tyra and with that spirituality it much more affected my interpersonal relationships it wasn't drugs and it wasn't boys and it wasn't those type of stuff it was more anger it was more just not caring and not doing and a huge amount of depression and just talking back and i was always very smart so i had what to say i had the right type of chutzpah to get under people's skin it was more that type of behavior And then I went into therapy in ninth grade and really have been in and out since then. And so it never really affected my relationship with God and my relationship with that. But I will say this, and I say this with complete understanding of where people come from. Anyone who has gone through trauma and ends up from on the other side, I give you a lot of credit because it's not a simple thing. It's not a simple thing to... Not question. Where were you where I needed you? Where were you when I cried out to you, and where were you when everything was horrible and I didn't see a way out? Where were you? And I will tell you that even as an adult, there are times that like I've gone in the car and I've driven like to a quiet place and screamed at Hashem, where are you? Where what? Why would you put me in this situation? But I think the important part here is that we're allowed. Like we have to give ourselves allowance to scream and to be angry at Hashem and why? Sometimes the why is not answered. And sometimes the why is not a, it's not answerable and that's okay too. And we have to put that on Hashem, it's his fault. And I don't know if that sounds horrible, but he orchestrated this and he put us there and he sees something that I don't see and I can be angry and I'm allowed to be angry. And I'm allowed to be upset and I'm allowed to scream at a sham and I don't get it. I just don't get it.
0: And that's okay too. And you speak of this relationship. Being angry is part of being in a relationship with God, with your spirituality, avoiding it, rejecting it. That's opting out of it. So you always strove to stay connected. You just mentioned a low and being in a place where you didn't know how to get out of it. Are you referring to part of your healing journey or rock bottom
1: I would say it's before that, and I think that had events played out differently than they had, I would have ended up in a totally different place than I am today. A child who doesn't have words, imagine going into a room where you think people are listening to you, and you go in there and you want to shout what has happened to you, and instead all you see is a black hole, and no matter how hard you scream, the words are not reaching the people. That's what it feels like as a child to be suffering and saying, I don't even have the ability to tell anyone what's happening. You have a story and you have no voice. You have trauma and you have no words to put them into so that you can let anyone know that you need help. That is an extremely overwhelming feeling. And that's the rock bottom where you're like, why do I need to even get out of bed today? Because what difference is it going to make? And why do I need to interact with people? and? speak about these stupid ridiculous mundane everyday things when i am bleeding out on the table and that makes people angry so it was a lot of those type of feelings of i'm so angry and hurt that you're not seeing me you're not noticing me you're not seeing where i'm at and instead of saying things like oh she's just lazy or she's becoming a teenager or your child is in bed (laughs) when they previously were not in bed. It's not a regular teenage thing to be in bed for I don't know how many hours and to just read to the exclusion of social interact. You know, those, those type of things, they're not normal, but we excuse them because there's a space in normal society to be like, oh, maybe that's just how she's developing. And I think that had somebody just sat down and said, are you okay, what's happening? Instead of saying, oh, she's just a lazy teenager. <laughs> If somebody would have just looked at me and said, Hey, what's happening? You okay? Do you need anything? Do you want to go on a walk? What's, and not on the walk because, Oh, let's be exercise. Let's do exercise and let's get healthy on a walk. Okay. I'm really looking at you and seeing you. That's a gift to a child to be like, I see you what's happening. Talk to me. And nobody did that. And again, not, I'm not putting anyone down. I want to be very clear. Like my parents did the best with what they had. And as a parent, I recognize that when a child acts out, even in smaller ways, we're drained at the end of the day because we're human and they had two children, three children acting out. It's like it's exhausting. And I get it. They had multiple other children. They were already marrying all the kids and they were still in elementary school with other kids and they like, they had that whole rage. I can't imagine how exhausting that is.
0: Now, let me ask you this. We're back to your brother. He is in a leadership position. He's clearly in a respected role and respected in his community. What if there's anything you can shout out from the rooftops and expose him, which seems like, besides for your family, no one really knows, and your anonymity is very important?
1: The people who have hired him do you know. And they choose to continue to let him be in leadership role. And we've reached out to the organization that is above that and let them know. Everyone knows.
0: How do you explain that?
1: I don't know. I think
0: that. Is it the type of, is it the type of community or is it communities are just desperate for teachers? No. Or
1: No. I think that we give a lot of power to Chuba. right? Everyone can change. Everyone can improve. And everyone can, but that doesn't mean we put them in positions where they have access to repeat their prior mistakes. So I think it comes again, I think it comes from just a lack of understanding. I I don't know how else to explain it. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't know why it continues to happen. I don't know why other perpetrators are continued to allow to be part of a minion. Excuse me. (laughs) <laughs> why are they allowed to come into a shul? Why are they allowed to come into a school? Why are they allowed to go into a mikvah? Why are they, Why are people not saying, get out? And I think a big part of that is teshuva. We just believe that everyone can do better, and which is a beautiful thing, by the way. But I think it's a little bit misplaced. Like you don't have to go to mikvah to be a Jew. You don't have to be part of a Minyan to be religious. You don't have to do any of those things. You can order whatever you want from your app. Don't go into a store where children are allowed to be in. Don't do it. And I think that, I think it's a misplaced, it's misplaced righteousness is what it is.
0: Those are very powerful words and statements. Um, it, It makes sense that this is where a lot of perpetrators get and pedophiles get protected in the religious environments, because we do place a lot of value on tshuva and repentance. Do you think there's certain averos and sins that you do not come back from in societies? There's tshuva, but it's not acceptable to be out and about?
1: Okay, I'm going to say something maybe controversial. In today's day and age, we're very tolerant. Traditional Judaism has always been accepting, but not always tolerant. And that's okay. And I think that in the intolerance, we actually protect people. So if a person did something really harmful to a community, and I'm not saying this is right, and I'm not saying that we need to do this today. I want to be very clear with that. In medieval Judaism, they would take that person, put him into the front of the shul, and people would walk by and spit at him as they walked in and out of shul. And I made a statement. "This What you did is wrong. We may accept you back to the community, but you are never going to be the same again. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. What I'm saying is that there are certain things that leave an indelible mark on the psyche of another human, and we do not have to accept that. It is intolerant through being tolerant. You're not tolerating someone else's pain. You're not tolerating someone else's journey to where they are. And I cannot tell you how many times in my family people tell me, oh, you're playing the victim. I'm not playing the victim. I don't need to move on. I don't need to do any of those things. My boundaries are very clear. This person does not belong in my life. He does not belong in my children's life. And I will not go to a family simcha where he's invited.
0: And your family cooperates?
1: And therefore there have been family simchas where uh, and initially, I had to just not attend until they understood that I was not going to attend. And it hurt me. It hurt me tremendously. Now, sometimes what happens is that we divide the simcha, And so, I anyways, I'm very happy to go home early. <laughs> so, I'll come for the beginning of whatever simcha it is, take my children, go home, and then he'll be there for the end. And I will tell you one other thing. If I'm there by myself, I'm very good at ignoring him. But if I'm there with my children and I have to be on edge that my child might be next to him, I, that's unacceptable to me. And my children are not strapped in a stroller, right? So, like, I have to give them a certain amount of freedom. And I cannot do that when I am literally, I don't know what he's going to do or not do.
0: Have you had conversations with your children about their autonomy and language?
1: Absolutely.
0: I want to bring up abortion because... How can we not bring this up when that was a possibility for you to get pregnant from rape and incest? We've done episodes on abortion. I'm just wondering, because of your experience, does that give you a different perspective? And I know rabbis, when they're asked case by case, they're very lenient when it comes to these kinds of cases. Do you have a different opinion than most other people in your community? That's my question.
1: I think that, yes. If that's the question, i guess, yes, absolutely. And I will explain to you this, that I really think that things are not surface level. And I think a lot of firm people do take things at surface level. And what's really interesting is that a lot of firm people actually take whatever they hear in secular society and assume, because it sounds from that it is Tyra, and it's not. I have learned through my own journey that we always have to question what's below the surface. What does Tyra actually tell us? What is the implication on human psyche? And Tyra does take that into account. And so I think that through my own journey, through my questioning and through my finding the answers and delving into this with different rabbis, et cetera, and through my own learning, I have seen that, yeah, my opinion is usually sounds way more liberal than the average from person. Not because I'm liberal, but because Tyra is nuanced, and people lose that when they think that what sounds from and what's actually coming in from Christianity and from secular sources that sounds so from is actually very much not in tune with what the Torah wants from us. And yes, I do look at a lot of issues differently, and that's because I've actually taken the time to study and to research and to ask which I don't think the average from person is doing. And so I do want to encourage people to look below the surface. Like Torah is extremely nuanced and takes in human psyche and human condition all the time. And therefore we have to understand that whatever looks oversimplified is usually not Torah or usually not how Torah applies to individual people.
0: I would love to wrap up with And I'll say my closing statements and then you can share whatever words of wisdom you'd like to share with the audience. I just can't get over the fact that you went to camp, you were exposed to the language and to the truth of the facts of life, and you stood up for yourself and you made it stop. And how old were you at that point?
1: I was 12.
0: You were 12 and no one else was there for you and you put an end to it to to the ongoing obviously it was just the beginning of everything that was going to come after that because it wasn't close to over obviously but you at 12 years old protected yourself and and that's an incredible thing.
1: I've since been told it's actually highly unusual. Yeah, it always actually throws whoever I whichever therapist I've told the story to they're like, "Really? That's crazy. That's crazy." So, yeah, if you didn't, don't feel bad because that's not absolutely it's from my understanding not at all the norm. So, as we wrap up, what I want to say is if you're listening and you are not a survivor, have these conversations with your children. Please, it is not a lack of religiosity. It is not a lack of Torah values. It is not a lack of Tznius to have these conversations with your children. We must give words because without words, your kids cannot tell you what is happening. They are shouting into a black hole, and that is the most frustrating experience they can have. And if you are a survivor and listening, and you're in the midst of climbing out of whatever it is that you're climbing out of, know that it gets better. It gets better. I cannot say that anything ever goes away. But I will say not only does it get better, but you can use this to your betterment and to create the amazing strengths that God has given you through your own personal journey to really create positive change in your community, in your life, and really build something that other people look at and go, wow, how? Because the fact that you're here today shows that you already have a lot of strength. And to the community members who are listening, don't be afraid to speak up. And to the community leaders who are listening, you have to speak up. You must speak up when you hear these stories. There's no Chil HaShem in the fact that you're talking about it. There's Chil HaShem in the fact that it has happened. And the only thing that you can do is to talk about it so that it cannot happen again. These things happen in the dark. They happen when there's no talking about it. And so by talking about it, you are doing the biggest prevention. So talk about it all the time.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your story and I want to make a note it took us probably six months to get you on you're very busy and I really appreciate you carving out this time because these messages need to be shared and these stories need to be shared this happens in our community unfortunately and we actually have we have a chance at changing the future it's up to us each and every one of us so thank you
1: absolutely thank you
0: If you benefited from this episode and you'd like to reach out to the guests, let me know. I can put you in touch. We've done a lot of great work behind the scenes of this podcast, especially in these episodes with anonymous guests where people in similar situations got connected and helped from our guests and vice versa. I'd love to see you in the chat, so please join. The link is in the show notes. We will be having a second episode later this week, so stay tuned for that. Check out the links in the show notes for the weekly squeeze for the jewishcoffeehouse.com podcast. You have Orthodox Conundrum, Intimate Judaism, Let My People Eat, and Chochmat Nashim. Also, check out the other episodes in the No More Silence series of The Francisca Show. Thanks so much for all your support. In case you didn't know, the easiest way to support the show is by subscribing to it, leaving a good rating on whatever podcast app you're listening to, and of course, spreading the word about the show to your friends and family. Hope you have an easy rest of your fast, and may we all merit to not be fasting next year at this time.